Well, we're continuing in our study of the doctor's gospel, and I do want to thank the men for their preaching and overseeing of uh, prayer meeting. Uh, Mark and Roger did an outstanding job preaching from John, no surprise, Mark, and, uh, and Roger from uh, Ephesians and the spiritual warfare that we're, a lot of times we forget that. We go like, ah, oh, this is pretty good here. You know, like, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that today, but uh, we appreciate that from Ephesians. And then Larry and Ron, you guys did a great job with prayer meeting, overseeing that. We appreciate that so much. And the guys yesterday, you guys did a great job, uh, particularly Larry with your general oversight with the ladies and the meals and all that stuff. Mike, who, who will forget you making Belgian waffles? Uh, you worked till 1.30, but they still came out good and no complaints. We, I looked in the box. We didn't have one single complaint in there and uh, so on. So there you go. We're great. Well, the high cost of discipleship is the title of the message I've, I've written uh, for today. And uh, uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, 25 to the end of the chapter, is our focus text. You know, I recently saw two buildings that uh, had been under construction and uh, were abandoned unfinished. Abandoned unfinished. The shell of the building stand as a monument to the foolishness of the owners who seemingly had not adequately counted the cost. And it's always all those contingencies, right, Dave? Contingencies and contingencies. And, and we're unable to finish the building. Now, one of those buildings is, uh, uh, you read a lot about it here in the paper in Harrisburg uh, with the Patriot News over on Cameron Street. I, I don't know what in the world went on there. It was near the Farm Center. And I don't know if they ripped it down yet or not, but I saw it a little bit ago, and it's still standing there unfinished. And it was a calamity of errors and this and that, and who knows what happened. Frankly, I don't want to know. I'm on a need-to-know basis, and I don't need to know. But it stands there like they couldn't finish it. When we were down in St. Simon's, uh, that's a sort of resort area. There was a three- or four-story concrete, looked like a condominium, a block from the uh, beach. And uh, we've been going down there for about four years now to visit the kids and all that. And it's abandoned. And uh, if I were the neighbor, I walked by it with my granddaughter, and I thought, boy, if I was a neighbor living next to it, it's like a 12, 14-unit thing. It's not a little thing. And I like weeds and trees growing all over, and they're open cells where the outside walls are not even finished with the concrete honeycomb, you know, it kind of looks. And it's as ugly, and I go like, what? And I go like, what a monument to someone's foolishness and not being able to adequately calculate the cost or whoever knows what happened to finish the project. Well, did you know that Jesus once used such a picture to warn us, it's a warning, he warns us of the cost, the true cost of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, one of his. And to be a disciple means to be a believer. Don't think that it's somehow some super category of a Christian. I'm a Christian, maybe I'll be a disciple someday. Some people skirt around this issue. You know, it's like the lordship, salvation issue. Like, I'm saved, but I'm not really sure Jesus is my Lord. Maybe I'll make that decision later. That's crazy. That's not the gospel. It's Lord Jesus Christ. Read again Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you'll say in your heart, Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. And the same thing with discipleship. They're not like, I'm, I'm like a second class. Uh, I was second class scout in the scouts. Then first class, got a few merit badges. Not like a couple of you guys that were Eagle Scouts. But uh, you guys were the real deal. Like, I was a scout too, Troop 164, and all that kind of thing. But no, they're not like categories of Christians. And now I'm finally up here and I'm a disciple. No, if you're a believer in Christ, you're a disciple. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about you. He's talking about me in this picture here. And did you know that Jesus used this picture? And many of you know of it. Even Paul uh, referred to it yesterday when we were or the day before, on counting the cost of building a tower. I go like, hey, that's great, Paul. That's, that's my sermon for this week in the very words uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ to warn us what? The cost to calculate, sit down, and deliberately think of what does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus. In other words, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian? 
He calls us, all who are considering him as Lord and Savior, to calculate it. And if not, you may begin in the faith or some sort of faith. You know, there is a faith that does not save, James 2. Right? And then get rocked, your world gets rocked, and then you're, I'm out of here, and it just demonstrates that you are not saved. Because what God does, he does forever. And so when we hear the gospel, and when we present the gospel to others, let's present the real deal. Not, let's not water it down. In our desire, of course we want people to be saved. We want them to have the assurance of heaven, their sins forgiven, to become a follower of Jesus. But the temptation might be that we don't give the full story. I hear that sometimes when people say, don't you want a friend? Well, who doesn't want a friend? You know, when, in, in their attempt to share the gospel. You know, like, do you want someone who will comfort you? No, I do. I, no, I don't. I want someone to beat me up. You know, like, th- these are fruits of, of, of being a, a Christian and walking with them for sure. But that's not the gospel. You see what I'm saying by that? So we have to think about the gospel, what it means, and we have to, before we lay down and finish and look for a response, and it may be forthcoming later, maybe 10 years later, wait a minute, before you, you pray to trust Christ, I want you to know there's a cost. Oh yeah, what's that? You know, you're not, it's not like the fine print they got to read later. You ever have a, you buy an appliance, and, uh, and then, then all of a sudden, it, you know, it'll never break. We always buy stuff, it'll never break, right? Right. Right. You're like, ah, I don't need the extended warranty or this or that. You know, like, read the fine print. And then you read the fine print. Oh, we would have covered it for 30 days, parts and service, this and thing. But, you know, it's 32 days, so buyer beware, you're on your own, right? The fine print. Jesus hangs it right out there. There's no fine print. Uh, he invites all and every to come. The gospel, there's a general call to the gospel. Come unto the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And that is true. And now he's going to say, with that general invitation, and as you hear it today, and as you and I carry that to others that need to hear it, we say right up front, now wait a minute, before you do that, I want you to know there's a cost to be paid. Isn't that great? He's not going to sneak up. Well, we'll tell you that later, you know. No, he tells him right up front. Listen, God is saving. He's the one that saves. It wasn't your looks or your brilliancy or your opportunity and aren't you lucky that saved you. God saved you. If you know Christ, he called you out. And he is changing you through the work of the gospel in your life. We call it sanctification. He's making you like Jesus. And so right up front, Like the Lord Jesus here, we ought to be forthright with folks. And God will still call and draw as we express even the cost. When we share the gospel, we need to be faithful to include the cost. I have on your sheet. Salvation is by grace, and it's free. Jesus paid the price. But following him will cost us everything we have. And Jesus today is going to call each one of us here to count the cost. And it's a high cost, this cost of discipleship. Many Christians give a precious little for Jesus, especially those of us who enjoy such abundant prosperity in the West, particularly in the U.S. Well, three costs that Jesus unfolds of discipleship, needing to be seriously considered. I forgot the E.D. there. Considered before asking Jesus to save us. So serious is this, and it is, that Jesus warns in our passage three times. It's like, strike one, strike two, three strikes, you're out, right? Three times, it's like, say it again, uh, you know, it's like, again, again, oh, I finally heard it. You know, sometimes when we tell our kids that, they don't hear it first time, second time. Now hear this, now three times. He says what? If this isn't so, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, it's that. I mean, that we're talking dead serious here, dead serious. Let's read our text. Look at at chapter fourteen of Luke, verse twenty-five to the end of the chapter. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, "If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children," and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, 
He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, number two, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 soldiers to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation, he asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, the third time now, cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste or saltiness, how shall it, its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. It is useless. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Well, there are three costs of discipleship needing to be seriously considered before asking Jesus to save us from our sins. Or if you never thought about this and you have trusted Christ and embarked on the road of salvation, hear the words of the Lord. This is going to describe your life. Don't be surprised by this and be willing to do all that he calls us to. Well, the first cost of discipleship is, number one, your love for Jesus must grow stronger and stronger, surpassing all other loves. Verses 25 and 26. In short, Jesus must be your first love, not merely one among many. You know, it's like someone saying, well, I, I love uh, pizza, and I love yogurt, and I love Philadelphia cheesesteaks on Friday night, right? And I love kisses from my granddaughters, and uh, I love Coke, and uh, I like Turkey Hill Diet iced tea. Actually, I do love that. And, uh, oh, and yes, I love Jesus. Now, we're not talking about a litany of, let me, uh, of, of the loves that you have in your life as if they're all equal. Of course, we, we love certain these things, and we... We, we do. But what he is saying by this, we'll see, is that Jesus must be your first love. When push comes to shove, and if you were ever forced to have to decide between any of these, shall we say, lesser loves, that you would be willing to say by the Spirit of God and the gospel in you, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Bunyan had to decide that. You know, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Men went through that a number of years ago. That was a great study there in the 1600s in Bedford, England. And uh, he had been wonderfully saved. He, he wrote Amazing Grace, and don't we love that? And, and he wrote his biography. He was a wretched, sinful man, as we all are by birth. Yeah, he had been a, uh, a ship uh, captain on a slave ship. Uh, picking up the slaves from Africa and treating them terribly. And the ship went down. He was at sea floating around. He had heard the gospel earlier. And God saved that wretched man. That's the base of that song. Well, bit by bit, God called him into the ministry. Now, he was not part of the Church of England. He, he, he was not there in Bedford, but he wanted to preach. And they said, you cannot preach. You can't, he couldn't preach open air. He was not ever invited to the churches. And so he would preach anywhere. So they arrested him. And they threatened him. And he had children and a wife and, and so on. And his oldest daughter, she, uh, she was blind. She was uh, like 10 or 11 at the time. And they said, if you keep preaching, we'll put you in jail. Imagine that. You see, we're so lazy in America. We just think, like, doesn't everybody everywhere have freedom of speech? Uh-uh. No. In Qatar, they don't. Pack up. You're out. And a lot of places in the world are like that. Well, he wouldn't stop preaching. He loved Jesus. Well, you make, make a decision. God had called him to preach. 
I love my wife. He had a house full of kids. Well, who would support them? They threw him in jail. And he was in jail for 11 years. His daughter. Uh, and it used to plague and, and break his heart. She was 10 or 11, and she was 21, finally, when he was released. You know, his church would uh, gather. You know, the church is not the building. You know that, right? They would gather outside the prison wall. He would preach to them through the prison wall, uh, through the bars, and they would listen to him open the scriptures from the jailhouse. There's a man that push did come to shove, and he demonstrated the reality he loved Jesus. Much as he loved his family and ached and hurt, he did, he did what God had called him to do. He's a wonderful example of, the, of what Jesus is saying, the cost of discipleship. Most of us will not be thrown in jail. Most of us do not preach like that. But in little ways and large ways, we are, we are called to be touched. Do you love me more than all? Do you? You realize, of course, if something is above the Lord, it's an idol. And we all have that. Our hearts are idol makers. You know, whether it's a thing or a person or a grandchild or a child or someone else, we, we make idols all the time. I, I find myself having to spend time in confession all the time. Lord, search my heart. Maybe it's a reputation. Maybe it's something abstract like that. I want to be well thought of by a certain, you know, that's an idol. That's, that's, that's haughtiness and pride and these, and above Jesus. Or fear of man. Maybe we shun to speak of Jesus because we want to, we, we, we fear man and what they think. They'll think less of me if they know I'm a Christian. When push comes to shove, Jesus says here, listen, in the text, if he does not hate his father or mother, now what a text for Father's Day, right? What pastors say, well, I have to hate my father. Please don't walk out here thinking that's the sense of it. But understand here what, what, what's going on. Father or mother, wife or children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life. So, so, so what is he saying here? In short, Jesus must be your first love. Hey, Jesus just given a gracious invitation for all to come to his banquet and be saved. Remember that? Go out and impress them to come in. That's what we're going to do at Jubilee. They're going to give out tracts, impress people, invite them. There's a banquet. I mean, heaven's going to have great food and all that, but it's figurative of the, the joy of, of heaven. Come in, bring them in, go out into the streets. That's what we're going to do. That's what, Rob, that's what we're praying for God to really work here. Right? We're going to do that. And the Lord just invited all and everyone to come. Now he's showing, now wait a minute, those that come need to sit down, get out their piece of paper, and this is the cost that will involve. Come, but know this. Know this. Know the cost, what it means to be a Christian. Well, it means now speaking to a great crowd, he tells them that it's going to be very costly to follow. You know, if you're, you're building some of these super churches today, I don't know if church is the right word there, you know, like, oh, don't say that message, people won't come back. You know, we want to build a crowd here. You know, I, I do. I pray every day. Lord, fill this place. Fill it. Make this. Lord, hit. Do the gospel so great here in our lives that many, many people would hear the gospel of Jesus. Well, I guess we've got to give an irreducible minimal message. You know, some pastor like that. I can't preach that. There'll be a, people be offended. They won't come back. And, and, and being disobedient, they offend God. We'll have to give an account of that. Jesus is not going to do that. You notice that? Hey, we got a great crowd. That's great. Keep the, keep the uh, good times rolling here. No, he's not going to give a, a bare minimum message not to offend. He's not going to do that. It's going to be costly to follow. None of this easy believism. Scratch your head, sign a card, you're in. You know? Like, what do you do? I did this. Or, you know, and, and I've, I've urged folks that their mamas want to be saved at an early age. They hear the gospel. And, uh, and that, well, what was it? My mama said that I prayed a prayer. To, and it can happen. God can save four-year-olds, five-year-old, young ones. I know it's true. But they're trusting perhaps more in what mama said happened there than in a living Savior who died for them. And I'm not so sure. I wonder about can they really know the cost that's involved? But you keep sowing it, keep sowing it, keep sowing it in the hearts of little children. I mean, that's what we do. And God is the one who brings the increase. So keep doing that. Don't hear. But it's not easy believism. Just don't add Jesus like adding Coke 
Coca-Cola. You have to watch why you mean that today. And Coca-Cola to your life. All are invited to come, but think about it. Well, and so in verse 26, the disciples called to hate his family. Hate his family. How can that be? Hate your father or your mother, your husband, wife. Love is the fulfillment of the law. How can that be? God is love. We're called to love. This is how you, you know you're a disciple. If you love one another, Jesus said. How can that be? Is there, that must mean the Bible has contradictions in it. Can't trust it, throw the whole thing out. No, that's not what it means. And you're misunderstanding. Though some will rip this section and, and try to attack the Bible in that way. It stands on its own. Two, it's a, not a contradiction in the Bible. It's a figure of speech or a form of speech used in that culture in the ancient Near East to make a comparison. That's how, if you didn't hate your father or mother, your husband or wife, uh, more, more than, than that. Let me show you an example. I think I have on your Genesis 29. Remember the story of Rachel and Leah? What a bummer that story was for her. <laughs> what, a, what a story there, right? You remember that? Jacob worked for Laban all, all those years, and he, he had his eye on Rachel, who was absolutely a drop-dead gorgeous woman. And he comes to marry her after seven years. Some of you think, well, boy, you don't know my father. You don't know Laban. <laughs> he squeezed every last time. And when it came to the wedding night, and you're like, well, how could that happen? You don't think of our wedding ceremonies. All right, they're all, the brides are all covered, you know, and, and, uh, and, they, and the ceremony happens, and then they go to consummate with sexual union, and it's dark, and it's night, and who, who is it? Uh, I hope it's the right one. It wasn't the right one. He didn't know it till the morning, and he woke up. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall to Holy cow. And you guys use both those names for your girls. Yeah. And then he, uh, what a bummer. That, now that's my definition of a bad day. I mean, I don't know how you wake up in the morning. But <laughs> oops. And it wasn't an oops on dad's part. He said, that's the custom of the land. And so, so he wants Rachel and... Uh, and so on and so forth. So he ends up, you, you, some of you know, you may want to read to get the detail. The Bible is more exciting than, <laughs> it's fun when people read the Bible first thing, like, I didn't know all that stuff was in there. <laughs> They're not shy. I'm telling you. And in Genesis 29, then, then Laban promises Rachel to him. He's going to now end up marrying both of them. He's going to finally have Rachel. And finally it happens. So in Genesis 29, verse 30, so Jacob, incidentally, his name means deceiver, tricker. He's, uh, he's the, uh, he, he got tricked. The tricker got tricked. So Jacob went into Rachel. In other words, he had sex with her. He also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Notice that. That's the comparison we're going to make here. And served Laban for another seven years after. And look at verse 31. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Now what's the text say in the verse before? He loved Rachel more than Leah. And then the next verse, when the Lord saw that he hated Leah. Well, he didn't hate Leah. He loved Rachel more. It was, it's an idiom of comparison. And so Jesus is saying, not hate your father, but don't love your father more than you love me. The Lord is saying that. Don't love your wife more than you. Don't love your friends. Don't love your children. Don't love your grandchildren more than you love me. I must be number one if you're to be a disciple. That's what he's saying. Do you, do you follow that? And even your own life. So there we go. He says, anything, even your own life, it comes down to it, that you would choose the Lord Jesus. And that's what it means to hate one's family. It's a comparison. Well, Jesus must have first place in your life. Or you cannot, he says, 
You cannot be his disciple. I think this is an increasing awareness. We come to a faith in Jesus and we feel the wonderfulness of being having our sins forgiven and we start the trod to heaven and increasingly the things on earth we sing grow strangely dim and, and we focus on him and we, he, we love him more and more and more as we, we experience life and he carries us through and he continues to forgive us of our sins. He must be number one. Never put your dearest loved ones before the Lord Jesus. Never such a thing as idolatry. We are to love him with all our heart, our soul, and our strength. And then the second commandment, and that's good description, second in priority, our neighbor as ourselves. After the Lord, after all things. So do you have that? Do you have an increased love for the Lord? I do. I do. More, more about Jesus, I sing. More about him. As the deer pants for the streams, or so my soul pants after him, oh God. You see, we can never put that deepest yearning of our heart for another on our other loved ones. They can never carry the freight. It will always disappoint. But there is one who will never disappoint. He is the Lord Jesus. He is. I'll say it one more time. Faithy gave the tribute about her dad. I know I've used it before, but Faithy's mom, Gladys, uh, uh, said, and I used it before, but not all of you heard it, in reminding me of this truth. She, when Pop died in 1999, they were married for uh, just about 50 years, I think, even 50 years. Yeah, they were over 50. It was when we celebrated the 50th. Um, even though he didn't marry till 30, and then when he died, he was uh, her everything, and she was a faithful, wonderful wife. And we wondered how mom would do. And she would end up living about four and a half years after pop went to heaven. And, we, and uh, she did all right. She really did. She did, she did great. Um, she, got real, she got real skinny. So remember that? She go, I, I don't have a man to cook for. I didn't realize I cooked for him and then ate with him. You know, like... <laughs> And, that, uh, and, and so on. She taught the ladies Bible study and she did really good. And then finally the last year she came down, she just turned 80 and she had come down with uh, acute leukemia and started bleeding from the gums and, and these kind of things and always had the gentle spirit of Jesus, even then. And uh, she would get episodes of chills where her temperature would shoot right up and come down as her body was just about out of gas and not able to fight too much anymore. And yet she could never tell when they would come on in the last weeks, months and weeks, as she had hospice caring for her. And she was in what was Sarah's old bedroom visiting us at that time. It was the last time she visited. And she, uh, she was up in bed, she was really tired, and she broke out in the sweats again. And, uh, and it would last for about 10 or 15 minutes and we would put cool rags on her and comfort her, and then she would come back. And then she would say, was I on one of those trips again? That was her, her words were so beautiful. Uh, and I sat there in the bedroom, uh, it was Sarah's old bed, and I said, you know, Mom, I just want to tell them how much we love you, and I love you, and I'm so honored to have you. And, uh, you know, I just wanted you to know, uh, you know, how proud I am of how you handled life so well after Pop was gone. I mean, he was, he was the love of your life. And here she is, and you, some of you know what I'm going to say. She lay in bed just having come through that. She goes, oh, Terry, she's going to exhort the pastor now. I love Bud very much. He is not the love of my life. I love the Lord Jesus more than anything. There was a sermon for the pastor in a, in a bed that she would only live a few more weeks, and I needed to hear that. Wow. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He didn't say hate Bud or hate her kids or that. Well, we easily don't. We can easily idolize our kids. We can e easily idolize our grandkids or, or a friend or a thing or something else, even our own life. She said, a disciple's one, that the love for the Lord must surpass 
all other loves. That's what he's talking about. That's the first cost. The second cost of discipleship, found in verse 27, fine, you must be willing to bear the suffering that comes from following Jesus. You must be willing. You may not. It may be small ways and not large. It may be large ways and mostly small, but you must be willing to suffer. That's the idea of, of carrying your cross. Hating our families, meaning he's our first love. Second, carry our cross. A cross is a death instrument. And so in verse 27, he says in our text, just to remind us one more time, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, second time, cannot, cannot be my disciple. This is a willingness to share Jesus' fate of rejection by the world. The cross-carrying, however, does not refer to common suffering, but to specific ones. What do I mean? You know, sometimes people say, and it's an expression in our culture, people say, oh, we all have our crosses. Have you heard that? It's, uh, you don't hear it as much today as we move into a really a post-Christian day and the influence of the Scriptures. People don't know the Bible like in the general culture like they once did here. And they'll say, well, we all have our crosses. I go, well, what's that? Well, I, I have this hangnail. You know, like, oh, and I just, oh, and we all have our crosses. Or my dog's always getting sick. I'm going to the vet. Oh, we all have our crosses. Well, you know, that, that is not what he's talking about. Or, or even illness. You know, like, oh, you know, my heart palpitates. I'm on this medicine. Oh, we all have... No, those, are, those can be issues, of course, in a fallen world, and some of them are more occupying than others. That's not what the Lord's talking about. He's talking about the specific suffering that comes to us by our identification with the Savior. The suffering, the rejection, the misunderstanding, the harm, or even death that may come, and does come. Did you know? It's estimated, and we, heart, we about never hear of it in the media. There are 400 Christians, and, and that's probably a broad definition of the word Christian, that are martyred or killed every single day in the world. 400. That's enormous. That's enormous. Now maybe some of them I don't know for what and all the reasons, and I don't know who figured that out, but a suffering, the martyrs for Christ, uh, has issued words like that, 400. You see, our rebellious world hates Jesus and anything to do with him. They don't want simply separation of church and state. They'll tolerate the church, maybe. It's Christ the world hates. I had an opportunity, I told Bev one time, I was... Uh, I was a chaplain over at the Senate at the Capitol building and had a, uh, a great opportunity to spend a day with the senators over there and the opening the session with, uh, with a prayer of invocation. Uh, and uh, sensing that, that there may be an issue there, I wanted to know, in fact, uh, uh, that uh, I could pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Otherwise, it wasn't worth me crossing the river. That's what I told our senator at that time. And he said, absolutely, you have total assurance. Uh, you, you, can, you can pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. I said, great. I look forward to coming and, and spending the day over there. And I, I did. I enjoyed the, 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 uh, uh, all of that. And, but to pray, well, why? I sensed, you, you know, this uh, Franklin Graham at the, in, uh, at the inauguration of a former president. Remember that? And all the all the hullabaloo that followed because Franklin Graham is going to pray at this secular um, uh, inauguration of the president down in D.C. He's going to pray in the name of Jesus. Now that's an affront. That's offensive to people. Just pray in some sort of generic, hey you, the great other there, and the uh, people will maybe tolerate. That just shows how utterly rebellious and wicked the hearts of men and women are. Our hearts are part of the grace of God invading our lives. You see, Jesus is the issue. Jesus. People will let you do God talk. Bring Jesus up, and you'll feel there is an intense pressure there. It's Jesus, not some sort of generic God. And Jehovah, you know, Jehovah is not even a biblical word. It's a made-up word. I will tell you about that later. They took the name of God, and they put different consonants with it. 
uh, our vowel pointing with it. It's uh, trying to understand the word Yahweh in a way, and they hear the word Jehovah. But talk about Jesus, and you'll feel uh, some hostility. That's what he's talking about by being identified with him. In small ways and sometimes large ways, such sufferings are a badge of honor for the believers. Remember the Acts, Acts in Jerusalem with the early disciples? They counted it a privilege to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Suffering could involve words where people misunderstand us. Oh, you're one of those Christians. Or you don't get invited to places. Or you don't get promoted maybe at work. People want to know, is he one of us? Does he play ball with us? Does she... Divisions, loss, misunderstanding, suffering, and even death. Wow. That's what we're talking about. I read in prayer meeting this last night, World Magazine had a good article in there about an, a distinguished medical doctor at Johns Hopkins. Uh, he separated Siamese twins 25 years ago. African-American surgeon, brilliant man, brilliant uh, man working with uh, children down at Hopkins in Baltimore, was invited in May to go to Emory University in Atlanta to bring the commencement address. I mean, the, what, a, what a terrific thing. Uh, what, a, what a great thing for that university. Well, well, until a number of the faculty found out a couple of things about this doctor. Now, this must have been a tough one because uh, for Emory down in Atlanta and this physician, brilliant African-American, I mean, it's tough enough, tough to say, you know, things against anybody, but certain groups seem to have, you can't say anything, but they swallowed that and attacked the man when they found out, well, wait a minute, he professes to know Jesus as a Savior. What is this guy? Is he some Neanderthal or something? He's coming, and the professors at the university, they had 160-some sign a petition uh, denouncing him in ways. And uh, beyond that, if that weren't not enough, they discovered he totally rejects evolution. And the academics went crazy down there. How can this person possibly do that? And of course, in the article, it's pretty interesting because he simply said, if you're into Darwinianism, you have no basis for right or wrong. He said, There's, look, if we all came from nothing, don't talk about right and wrong, good and bad. There is no such thing. It's all the same. It's nonsense. And they're like going crazy and trying to denounce him. And that's a hard thing to do. Do you think there was a cost for him to stand for Jesus? You bet. In that world, reputation and the pressures of that, I know from Greg when he's an associate professor at Hopkins and in that world, Who's writing what, and where is it going, and, and peer-reviewed, and all of that. It's a whole world most of us know nothing about. Reputation is so very, very, and there's a cost to pay. He suffered. Who knows in the future? Though he's 25 years into it, he's probably near the end of his career maybe. Uh, what opportunities will not come his way because of that? Another person who suffered largely, I've never said too much about, was one of my, my cousins, Bob Chappell, who, uh, who served the Lord as a missionary. He ended, left his work and uh, got some short-handed training, but wanted to go to Papua New Guinea to share the gospel uh, uh, there. And while he was there, after a number of years, uh, we got word that he had been shot and killed. Bob Chappell, my third cousin from Niagara Falls, New York and that his wife and the kids came, came home after a period of time, and they sent him home, his body home, in a body bag. Listen, it happens in lesser degrees. You know, some of you have families that, that, uh, that don't understand. Why, why are you part of a church that's Bible-believing, that loves the Lord, and why are you going to church all the time? Isn't twice a year enough? It seems like you're carrying your Bible, and you're overdoing it. Can't you all things in moderation? You know, that kind of thing. And there's a misunderstanding. There's a hurt and as you present the love of Christ. I know what that is. I know what that is. I had a father who was unsaved. I loved him very dearly. And, uh, and, and there, were, there was misunderstanding and heartache and longing and and, and, uh, and, and in a lot of ways, they don't have time to say no. 
And, and, and so that happens. And so he's saying, listen, the second cause, you must be willing to bear the suffering that comes from following Jesus. Eric Little knew what that was in Chariots of Fire. The Olympian, remember Chariots of Fire? Wonderful Olympian, ran the 400, never ran it before. And he won the gold medal, and, and he was called to, to, go to, to, to go to China as a Presbyterian minister, missionary. Remember that? Some of you remember the Chariot of Fire? Some, maybe it's a few years old now, but uh, he said, I love God and I love the gospel, but God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Oh, I love those words. And as, as we do the things God has built us to do, there is a pleasure in that. There's a joy in that. That we go like, that's where I fit in, in God's world. And there's a pleasure in that. And God's delighted when we do the things he's made. And God made it. Well, he went to China. When he got on the train to leave, to head over there, the whole city came out. And on the back of the train, his final words, if it's accurate, were reported the world for Christ and Christ for the world. And he went to China. And you know the story. In the 30s, uh, the, uh, in the early stages of that war, uh, he was arrested, put into a prison camp, and eventually would succumb in prison as a missionary in China. I think he got pneumonia or something, and he died uh, there uh, serving the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to the Chinese people. Well, to make his points, uh, see, to make his point of the cost of following him and calling us to consider it, uh, Jesus paints two pictures warning us in verses 28 through 30 to build a tower. You build a tower in a garden to protect it. You build a tower around a city so you can, um, if the, the walls break, you know, you put, your walls were your defense. If you didn't have a wall system in that day, you were completely vulnerable to the passing, marauding hooligans or armies. You were. You couldn't have organized commerce. You couldn't have uh, society. It was totally unstable at the whim and the woe of whoever was passing through your area. They clean out all your groceries. They take your kids. They take your wives. They take your weapons, your metal. They couldn't use it. So you build a wall. Build a wall. It's a defense system. So you could have commerce, market. You could have grain and storage. And typically what you did then was you put up a tower. So if the walls gave in, then everyone ran to the tower and it was really secure and high. Or you were up there looking out, oh, here they come. Or in the last resort, you hide in the tower. Some of you remember the bomb shelters of the 60s. Do you, how many remember that? That's kind of a uh, we, we actually would go down into that. I saw a bomb shelter thing somewhere. Oh, I think it's over. Is that at the YMCA, Dave? Uh, I was, we had a wedding over there, a recent reception, and I saw the bomb shelter. I go like, whoa, that took me back. I think there's one at the Y in the basement there. So, uh, there that's information you may need, so run over there someday. <laughs> you probably won't make it, but uh, it's there anyway. Uh, and so a wall and a tower, very, very important. But to start it and then go halfway up, oh, what a, what a bunch of losers. They couldn't finish it. Out on 81, where 81 and 114 come, there was that, all that land there. Years ago, I remember, I don't know who the family was. It was a wealthy family, and then the kid inherited it. And, and some of you know more than others, but there's a tower there in the middle of weeds and everything now, and, and they used to laugh and say, what was that kind of thing? Some of you are nodding, you know. The rest of you are like, what is that? You know, I don't know. But it never was finished, or it burned down, or something. Did it burn down? Oh, he burned it down. <laughs> Forget that. That doesn't fit here then. <laughs> anyway, a tower. Well, you got the idea. And war, engaging in the expensive art of warfare. You had better sit down and calculate, or you're in deep trouble. Holy cow, it's Massacre City, the little bighorn, right? Oh, my. Uh, and that's what Robert E. Lee did, didn't he, at Appomattox? I mean, Grant was ruthless the way he was and in, in, in broke uh, there at Richmond and, and just finally got him bottled up in Appomattox. And Lee had to sit down and count the cost. Brilliant general, strategist, and he goes like, we're done. If we keep going, it will have nothing left. And he offered to surrender to Ulysses S. Grant. And it brought about, then, at the end of, uh, of that horrible civil war that ripped our nation apart. 
Yeah, that's what he's saying. You better sit down and calculate and make peace or else. So each one of us are to consider uh, what it means to be a disciple. We must weigh the cost. What's it going to cost? So we don't make the same mistake in the Christian life, begin and then not finish. If not, verse 27, the second time, Jesus says, you cannot, you cannot be my disciple if you don't do that. Well, hate our families, what's that mean? Jesus must be our first love. Second, second cost, we must carry our cross. Be willing to suffer, don't be surprised by that. And the third cost, in verses 33 to the end, is renouncing our, our everything we have. And we must do that. You must do that. Uh, for he requires total surrender. This involves giving Jesus total, full control of your life, releasing the ownership of everything you have to him. You know, if you've never done that, it is so freeing. It is. A lot of times we'll stay awake all night like, ah, and we're worrying. And instead of saying, well, you know, Lord, th that's all your stuff. Or my kids are your kids. All right? I'm under the blanket. They're yours. I'm going to sleep. And you take care of them. You take care of it. The business. You take care of whatever. Dear ones in our life, you take care of that. Our finances, our investment, our work, our bills, all of that. Renouncing our right to everything. That's what Jesus is saying in verses 33, 34, and 35. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, that's pretty, that's inclusive, uh, everything, third time, cannot be my disciple. This means surrendering control of all of these things to the Lord, uh, even your own life. Faith and I did that at our wedding. We felt so convinced. We took the words of song, Here's my life. Some of you know the old song. It's back a number of decades. Here's my life. I lay it on the altar. Here's my life for faithful service. Mold it. Here's no longer for us to hold it. We give it and we change the word. Here's our life. And we actually knelt under an arbor my father had made and flowers were in it in the front of her church. And we knelt side by side and somebody, her dear cousin, sang that song as a testimony of our lives back these uh, many years ago. Here's our life. All that we have, we give it to you. And we've been so grateful to this day that our life is not our own, that it is, it is Christ. The Lord Jesus is our example, is he not? And A, as he took, on, uh, took upon himself the work of, of Savior, he knew what would be involved with that. In eternity past, with the, uh, with the, uh, the decree to uh, redeem he voluntarily uh, volunteered uh, to uh, become a, a sin offering, to join humanity. And he gave it all up willfully. He counted the cost, and he laid down his life. That's what we are given to do. We are to count the cost and imitate him in this. He paid it fully. He drank the cup to the very dregs willfully submitting himself to the Father. And that's, he's our example in that. Renouncing his claim to his throne and to the wonder of heaven. In Philippians chapter 2, he was equal with God in every way, in the trimmings of royalty and all of that. And he gave it up freely for you and for me. We must give him everything in return as a disciple of Jesus, and then receive back from him whatever he wants us to have. He is the sovereign one. And this is the deliberate detaching yourself from attachment to the world, which is so necessary. We get so tied into the world, we become almost no good for the kingdom. People and stuff and everything else weighs us down. Often hear my father's words in a whole different subject. He'd say, son, let me give you some advice. Travel light. Travel light. You'll be so glad you did. Well, that's sort of what the Lord is saying. Detach yourself. Give it to me. I own it anyway. You don't own it. You don't own it. You came in with nothing, you're leaving with nothing. Oh, you'll have a tag on your toe. 
and then it'll show your name. But that's it. That's it. Give it to me. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness. Ah, and let me be a blessing through you. You think you own it, you don't own it. Every disciple of Jesus, one man writes, must relinquish all his possession. Not merely money and material things, but also what? Our dear ones. Our children can really take the place of over-occupying us. Uh, easily done. Uh, everything that, uh, that a heart clings to. And we do. We have that tendency to cling to things. You know, sometimes we say, oh, that person's clingy. You know, that's usually not a good thing, is it, right? They're clingy. They're, what do you mean? They're sucking the life out of me. Well, we, 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 we can be clingy and cling to things. No, we need each other. It's a body and it's life, and God designed it that way. But um, clinging to something uh, in the place of God is not right. Yea, even our own life, he writes, our desires, our plans, our ideals, and our interests, we are to give them all to the Lord. We are, we are the living sacrifice. We don't have any rights. It's all his. And then, after we do that, after we give him everything on your sheet I have, then receive back from him whatever he wants us to have. Wow. Well, what's left, you say? What's left? Only the life that Jesus wants me to have and the way he wants me to have it. Unless we follow Jesus in this way, we are, uh, we are worthless as salt that has lost its saltiness. Wow, salt. I love salt. You know, with high blood pressure and tendency towards hyper, they say you can't have salt. I don't know what it is. It must be like sin in the law. You know, like Paul said, I didn't know sin till the law came. You know, like, you're like that. You're like, uh, I wish I didn't see the speed limit. I was going faster and I saw that and now I don't know what to do. No, you know what to do. <laughs> anyway, I'm not supposed to have salt, but sometimes I go around rummaging in the kitchen to see if Faith had some pretzels with salt on at night. I, I just kind of, I don't know, I love that. I go like, I love heaven, I love salt and pretzels. I'm not supposed to have it. Well, I'm going to have two more. Two more. To, you know, you can't eat just a couple of those. And then I just like to lick the salt off. I wish I even said, he should have said something else. But uh, anyway, uh, salt that loses its saltiness. Boy, that's worthless. How could that happen? NaCl, sodium chloride, is uh, pure salt, and uh, it can't lose its saltiness. But the salt in that day came from the Dead Sea. Some of you swam in that when we were there, or you floated in that when we were there, and that was great fun. Maybe we'll have a chance to go back there someday. But they would take water from the Dead Sea, let it evaporate, and then what would be left would be the, the crystals, and they would gather them up. Now, since it wasn't pure crystals, and there were other uh, crystal-type substances there as well, because the Dead Sea is, uh, is the saltiest water in, in the whole world naturally occurring, one-third of it is salt. Imagine that, one-third. Your oceans are like 4%. Give you an idea. I remember one guy went in after he shaved. I said, don't shave and go in. Holy cow. He, oh, I forgot. He jumped in and he went under. And <laughs> he was all, it was all irritated and red everywhere he shaved. Oh, I hurt for him. Well, the Dead Sea salt, so what you end up with then is you have a mixture. It's not pure. And bit by bit by bit, the salt would, would be absorbed into whatever, the food, and uh, you'd end up with very little salt and a lot of other mineral, and it didn't have the saltiness. So they would, they would pitch it out. They'd throw it on the path. They'd throw it in, in, on the dung pile for purification, whatever was left. And that's the illusion that Jesus is saying. So what is he saying? That if, if these things are not in your life as a disciple, a follower of Jesus, that is, that, that you're, you love Jesus is number one. Second, you're willing to suffer for him in large ways, but mostly small ways. And third, that you renounce everything that you have. It means total surrender. If you're not willing to do that, you and I are like salt that is saltless. It's worthless. It's useless. It's good for nothing for the kingdom of God is what he's saying. Wow. And you have to admit that's exactly right. When we love other things more than we love Jesus, how good are we in, in the gospel? Not very. We, it conflicts our heart. We know we're not right. We're in sin. We're not dealing with it. And uh, if, we're, if we're, we're afraid to suffer for the Lord or, or to be publicly identified with him, and, and it, how good for the kingdom? Are we not very, right, if anything? And then finally, if we sort of hold on to everything and our soul clings to things, and Jesus, Jesus and 
you know, how, how, how useful. He's not talking to pastors here. He's talking to all of us as followers of, of the Lord Jesus. How useful are we going to be? Not too. Not very. Not at all. In Jesus' words, you cannot. You cannot be my disciple. I close with this final illustration. Jonathan Edwards, that great preacher of 1700s, even as a young boy, uh, he wrote his resolutions. It's an incredible list. Here he is, 19 years old, and he writes this list, uh, be it resolved, be it resolved. He makes all these resolutions to the Lord. And, uh, and one of them uh, and, uh, and it was Edwards, and, and, and in his personal diary, and I'm quoting now, I have this day been before God, and I've given myself all that I am and have to God. I've given so that I am not in any respect my own. I have given myself clearly away and have not retained anything as my own. I have given every power to him so that for the future I'll challenge no right to myself. This I have done, and I pray God for the sake of Christ to receive me now as entirely his own. Jonathan Edwards. Well, lessons for our life, number one. Number one, the door of, of invitation is still open. You can be saved today. Maybe you're here and you, you're not saved. You don't know Jesus. Maybe this has caused you to say, wow, this is the cost of the disciple. Wow, I, this is not me. Jesus calling all men and all women to come to the cross. The invitation, come, come. Jesus saying, come, it's free, it's paid for, I've paid for it. And my death on the cross paid for your sin. But he's saying, however, before you come, consider the cost. There's a cost. Consider that. Come, press in. Consider the cost of not coming. Come, but come thoughtfully, deliberately. Come, you must. Number two, is, Jesus, is the Lord Jesus your first love? Remember the, the account in the seven churches in Revelation? I have somewhat against you. And remember the blessed church at Ephesus? He writes what? They had lost their first love. And that can happen. That can happen. We get, we're sinful, being redeemed. We live in a world that's no friend of grace, and we can lose that first love. If the, if, if the Lord is putting his finger on your heart and saying, you've lost that, and I think it's a day-to-day -day thing, then ask the Lord to forgive you and come back to that place. Ask the Lord to examine your heart. Put his finger on something that maybe is, is not right, and repent of that. You must love him above all else. Or you cannot be his disciple. Number three, suffering on account of Jesus goes with the territory. It goes with it. Don't be surprised by that. Rather, we're told, what? Rejoice. And, and uh, when suffering happens to us, that we were counted worthy to suffer for him who so suffered for us. That's the right perspective. When you're misunderstood because um, and make sure it's your identity with Christ, not your, your cranky personality. I'm speaking of friends. There's no one here like that. But, uh, <laughs> or, or, or some of our, our ways, right? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know whether or not he's a Christian. He's just really odd. And, and, and No. Well, make sure it's because of Christ. The fragrance of Christ that people... It's the fragrance of life, Paul writes in one place, and the fragrance of death to others. In Corinthians, in Corinthians, he writes it. Number four, uh, there's only one kind of disciple. Only one, according to Jesus. It's the one he described in this passage. And if you believed upon Jesus, this should increasingly, increasingly describe you and me as we make our trek to heaven. Number five and last, in prayer, give yourself to the Lord Jesus. For your life, give, uh, give to the Lord what? Your life. I do that every day. Join me in that. Lord, I give you my life. I'm the doulos of the Lord, the bondservant of the Lord Jesus. I give you my life. Uh, I, I, and, and then go on with it here. Where is it? Your family. Give your family. Lord, I give you my family. It's your idea. 
my, my resources, all that I have, my talent, my all, all of it, you're all. And tell him that it is his, to use for whatever purpose for his glory. It's his anyways. It's his. I have to keep telling you that because we live in such a day of materialism. And we're so blessed and we're, it's beyond, it's by historic standards, no people have ever lived of this standard of living that we do. And it, and it grips our heart and it holds us. And, uh, and, and happiness is not found in it. It isn't. Release it to him. That's the cost, the high cost of discipleship. I'm always available to help, to pray with you. If you need an appointment, call me. I'd love to spend that time with you, even after the service. If you don't know Christ, I'd love to help to, you see that happen in your life. Uh, or if you're struggling, just let me know. Uh, let others know here, our elders, and we want to help you in this in this high cost of discipleship. Father, thank you so much for this passage. It's an amazing passage, Lord. Even on Father's Day, as we honor our dads, to hear the word of the Lord that we're to hate our fathers, and we go like, well, what can that mean? Well, that's a powerful point reminding us of the cost of following you. And that really we're to love you with all our heart, our soul, and our strength. And Lord, I pray that for our church family, that uh, each one of us would grow and grow and grow in our love for you. And it would be your love in us coming through us. We can't do it naturally, but you must do it. Lord, we ask uh, that you would dismiss us here in a few moments, make us a blessing to all, and we'll thank you so much for this day. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, we're going to do a song based on Psalm 118.